I don't know how closely you were paying attention, but this just happens to be one of the hardest passages in the entire scriptures. Uh, and so I was thinking that our, our, the pastor who planted this church, uh, our founding pastor, used to say that whenever I had to preach a hard word, I would wear uh, very happy clothing. And I was like, oh, there we go. Uh, very unconsciously show. So I'm wearing my daisy shirt this morning. Uh, you know what they say about April showers. There you go. Um, Some of you just got that. This is a heavy passage um, in a series that we have called Resilient Faith. There's a kind of resilience it takes even to approach a text like this uh, with a willingness to really hear and receive what it's trying to say to us. And yet, I think that if, if we listen, which is so much of what Hebrews is trying to get us to do, listen, open your ears, don't harden your hearts, don't be... Don't be completely um, at arm's length from when God is trying to speak to you. I, I think that there's really powerful sustenance for the journey. The first thing that I want to point out, and if you're a, a writer in your Bible, which uh, I give you pastoral permission to be, I think that that's a good thing. This is what my Bible looks like, all tagged up. I'd encourage you to circle the word, if you have the ESV, to circle the word in verse 11 that says dull. Now, this first about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So I want you to circle that word dull there, or circle that entire phrase, dull of hearing. And I want you to jump down to the very last verse in this passage, 6.12, that says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I want you to circle that word sluggish there. It doesn't come out in the English translation, but same word. This entire passage is framed by these two calls not to be sluggish. It's it's a great word. It's It's a wonderful word. It's not used very often in the scriptures. But it's a word for laziness. It's a word for apathy. It's a word that very much stands with a lot of the language of Hebrews that speaks of this idea of, uh, of wandering off in the journey of faith. And it's really important, hopefully by now, if you've been with us for this series, uh, you're, you're almost tired of me reintroducing this idea. That's the point, is that the, the author of Hebrews is constantly using this image that we, as followers of Jesus, are very much in the, the same, if you will, location as the people of God once were in the story of God previously, namely in the Old Testament story of God's rescue of his people from Egypt, bringing them through the wilderness and ultimately leading them into the promised land. It says that we are in a very similar location. We have experienced redemption. We have experienced freedom from captivity, from sin. And yet we await the full realization of what's promised us in light of that redemption, we await entry into the promised land, which means that our location now is very much that the journey of faith takes place in where? Who said it? Wilderness. Takes place in the wilderness. Hopefully by like month, you know, 75 of this series, you'll say wilderness a little bit more quickly, right? Like it's one of the beautiful things about Hebrews, and this has been a lot of the emphasis so far. It's one of the most beautiful things that it acknowledges that the journey of faith is really hard. That when you come to Jesus, it's not all 
uh, ponies and butterflies and blessings and good things and no suffering ever. In fact, often it feels like the opposite. It feels like precisely to be faithful to the call of Jesus is to embrace a kind of ongoing, sometimes unrelenting difficulty. And then you add on the fact that the world is just what it is. We are who we are and we experience unexpected kinds of suffering and brokenness and yet are called to continue putting one foot in front of the other on our way to our own promised land, namely a completely renewed world where none of this stuff is true and yet it takes walking, it takes going in a certain direction in order to arrive at that. This passage, and this is going to resonate a little bit more with those of you who have been around church, is classically called the warning passage in Hebrews. And theologians discuss this passage of, uh, does this passage mean that you can lose your salvation? Does this mean that you can be a Christian and then not a Christian someday? And I just want to suggest that as we walk through this passage, I just don't think that those are necessarily the questions that this passage is answering. In fact, just to sort of mess with your categories a little bit, and I've said this before, in Hebrews, salvation is something that we're actually moving toward. That salvation is something that awaits us on the other side of the journey of faith, which is not to say that it hasn't already been guaranteed in the work of Jesus, already hasn't been sealed for us, right? We need to read this in concert with the rest of the New Testament, but in the conception of how Hebrews wants us to see the life of faith, salvation is what we're headed towards. And so you can't lose something that you have not yet attained. So coming to this passage with a question like, does the author of Hebrews think I can lose my salvation? Again, it's just a category confusion, even for the kinds of issues, the kinds of things that the author is actually trying to do here. So the biggest thing, and the reason why I had you circle those two words is, and this hopefully now makes sense with some of that framework, is that the author is saying that the biggest threat to you on this journey of faith is a sluggishness, is a laziness, is a resting, is a, is a remaining where you are for too long. That, right, progress is putting one foot in front of the other. And anything other than that, staying where you are, wandering off, turning back to Egypt as God's, any of that is a threat to you getting to the end. And in this particular passage, what he's trying to do is he's trying to wake us up to this reality by saying, what I'm doing, right? This guy's a pastor. What I'm doing as your pastor is I'm trying to wake you up so that that laziness, so that that apathy, so that that being stuck in place or wandering off is replaced by something better, is replaced by actually you putting one foot in front of the other on this journey to the promised land. All right, let's walk through the passage. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. So he's cutting off. If you remember last week, it was Easter Sunday. It might feel like a long time ago for some of you. I've had quite a week. feels like a long time ago for, uh, for me. What the author of Hebrews did last week is he introduces basically the second half of the entire letter. Remember we said this thing about the letters basically in thirds? So he's really introducing the second third of the letter where we're going to get all this highfalutin theology about Jesus as the high priest and Jesus as the perfect sacrifice and all these things. And he says, wait, before we get into that, can I just vulnerably share with you a fear that I have? Is that you're just not ready for this. 
is that you might have so long ago shut your ears off to the incredible truth of who Jesus is that anything I throw at you right now might just might be wasted, might be just a waste of breath for me. And in so saying that, he's both rebuking them and also trying to prepare them properly to say, but what I have to tell you could literally change your life forever. And so I'm going to do my best one last time to wake you up and say, are you listening? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Woo! Right? Like, that's some, that's some fire coming at people that this author loves. Do you hear the analogy? Hear the analogy? He's using the analogy of a child, of, of the weaning process of a child. That a child goes from this complete and total dependence on its mother's milk to slowly, and some of you are walking through this right now, to slowly taking in more and more solid food and hopefully then to full adulthood where you're able to provide food for yourself. You're not dependent. And he's saying that spiritually, many of you remain infants dependent on, and I don't want to get too graphic here, but right, like it's an interesting image, dependent on the nutrition of someone else, saying, I am ultimately leeching off of someone else's faith. My faith is not quite my own yet. I need other people to constantly come alongside me and remind me of the basic things of God. I need people constantly, I need gurus in my life who will tell me exactly what to do at every turn of life. And he says, this ought not be so. That is not Christian maturity. And he identifies it in three ways. He says, first, this whole thing about your dull of hearing. He says, you've just stopped being able to sit under the teaching of the word of God with any sense in which this is for you, that you need to listen to this. Not that that person that you're upset with needs to listen to this, or not that you five years ago that was actually excited about faith would have loved this sermon, or not that, ah, this isn't really for me because you're able to make this. No, you're able to actually sit under the word of God and say, I need to be attentive because God might be speaking to me in my situation right now and might be trying to either encourage me deeply or challenge me in some kind of a way. This is a good diagnostic for where you're at in faith, right? Today is a day not to look to your right or left. It's a day for you to look straight inward and say, how much of this is addressed to me? And it's a good diagnostic to say, if even right now you're beginning to say, well, no, I already heard the passage read, this probably isn't for me. I think the author would say, careful, careful. Second thing that he says is that by now you should have been teachers and yet you need someone to teach you again the basics. In other words, there does come a point in the life of faith, where we are able, and I don't think that this is talking about we're all able to get up and, and give a sermon on a Sunday. Scriptures are very clear that that's a particular kind of call and gifting and all that. But there is a sense in which at some point in the journey of faith, we should be able to come alongside others and be helpful in their journey. That it always shouldn't be about how, how I'm doing before God, but I should actually be able to come alongside others and say, how are you doing? And be able to give them something that's encouraging and challenging in their own journey. He says, that's, 
That's how the people of God, not just the individual person of God, that's how the people of God thrive. And if you're not all growing into that, then the body will suffer and then individuals will begin to suffer. The classic way of talking about this, I I grew up in church and I heard this term all the time, and it's actually a helpful term, especially given the imagery that's said here, is there does need to be a point at which we grow into becoming self-feeders. So it's a good phrase that we actually don't have to say, yeah, but what does Pastor Scott say about this? What does Tim Keller say about this? That we can actually sit under the word and say, what, what is God saying to me? We need to grow into that. And we can't always be dependent on others, right? Like I, I worked with college students for eight years. Um, and one of our biggest concerns for those students is that when you're in that college environment, especially when you're connected to a campus ministry, and I know uh, many of you, and I'm not assuming that all of us have been to college and all that stuff, but I do know many of your stories, and many of us came to faith around that time, maybe even on college campus, maybe even in a campus ministry. I'm just saying this because this is my experience as, as a campus minister, is that so often the problem would become that, that those students are given such an environment in which to thrive. You have Bible study once a week. You have church on Sunday. Then you have prayer meeting every day. And then you have this adult who's, who's seeking you out and pursuing you because we're paid to do it and to meet with you and to give you sage counsel because they're levels above you. And then you leave that environment and you begin to, instead of looking inward and saying, wait, now is my time to grow and mature into one who is able to do some of these for myself and even more so to do them for someone else, you begin to blame everything but your own maturity. You say, well, the church doesn't do what my campus ministry did. And let me just give you a newsflash. Your church will never be able to provide what your campus ministry did. Now look, that's that's not for everybody, but I bet there's some version of that for all of us. Those of us who grew up in Christian homes who then leave that home and find ourselves saying, well, no one cares for me like my parents did. It's the same thing, right? Like, here's your analogy. It's the same thing as leaving the home where everything is provided for you, where a meal just magically shows up on the table every day and and leaving, and then your first meal on your own comes up and you say, there must be a food shortage in the world. Something horrible has happened to the food supply chain. No, 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 no. Maybe you've not been prepared properly Or maybe it's time for you to learn what it looks like to go to the grocery store and to figure out how do I put these elements together in order to feed myself. He's saying when you've arrived at a point where you just find yourself completely incapable of bearing at least some of the load of your own journey, you're in a pretty dangerous, potentially, situation. Last thing that he says here is this interesting phrase in verse 14. Solid foods for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here's what that's saying, is that the goal of Christian maturity is not just kind of a biblical, a general biblical knowledge, right? Biblical knowledge and discipleship are not one and the same thing. They are deeply, deeply related, but they are not one and the same because what we're to do with the knowledge that we gain is to actually practice it and begin to have this this biblical, this beautiful biblical category of discernment where we're able to take the very complexities of life and, if you will, improvise with the word of God as our foundation and say, I can figure out what God might want from me in this situation. 
Rather than saying, because no one's ever faced this situation, or because I need to go find someone who's faced this, that's the only way for me to, to have discernment. No, we're to practice this. We're to take the word of God and say, oh yeah, this worked in that situation. This was a disaster. And to begin to build our own foundation of discernment. This is one of the most beautiful biblical words. Because the Christian ideal is not knowledge for its own sake. In fact, that was one of the heresies in the early church is that the, you just needed more and more and more and more knowledge. And the more knowledge you had, the more you had access to the secret handshake crew that actually had the secret knowledge of God. This was called Gnosticism. This is one of the most dangerous things. No, it's not just knowledge for its own sake. It's knowledge that becomes wisdom through this thing called discernment. And discernment, and parents, I couldn't commend this more to you because I learned this, to, to quote our founding pastor again, I learned this from Reed Monahan. He said, yeah, you want to give your kids knowledge, but you really want to train them in discernment. You want them to be able to turn off the movie, the TV show, the commercial on their own because you've trained them to say, this is what your eyes do and don't need to see. You want them to be able to say, I'm not going to spend time with that friend because I don't like the influence that they're having. And if all you ever do is call the shots for them, call balls and strikes for them, if you will, they will never actually themselves be trained to say, what is it about that decision that made mom or dad or grandma or auntie, what, what made them uncomfortable with that? Because when we, when we begin to give them the why behind that, we're training them in discernment. So too with the journey of faith. You shouldn't always just be wanting more knowledge for its own sake. You should be building the capacity to say, I know this is something that's said in the psalm that's quoted a ton in Hebrews, Psalm 95. It says, you didn't learn the ways of God. You knew his word, but you didn't know his ways. In other words, you weren't trained to discern what's of God and what's not of God. And all of this, for the author of Hebrews, begins with a sluggishness to be able to hear the word of God for ourselves. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's saying, come with me. Come with me into the deeper things of God. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. I think all he's doing in those listings, we could, we could go through those really carefully, but all he's doing is saying, these are the basics of faith. How you get in, things like baptism, stepping into your calling, the fact that there's a resurrection of the dead and a judgment at the end. He's saying, he's saying look, there, there's more than that. <laughs> there's more to the life of it. And you're going to need more in order to journey well in this life. Because stuff's going to come at you that you just can't throw simple verses at. There's a deeper kind of discernment. There's a deeper kind of dependence on God that's only cultivated in practice and not in mere head knowledge. He's saying, you got to move on. Not move from those. Those are your foundation. Not move away from those. Not replace those. You just got to keep moving. Do you hear that? Everything in this passage is movement. You got to move. You got to move. We'll return to that at the end. And this we will do if God permits. And I want you to, if you can see on the camera, there's like bright red around, if God permits. And that might not, that might sound like just nice religiously language right now. We're going to come back to that. Why does he throw that in there? And this we will do if God permits. Now the scary part, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then, we just that was a lot of clauses in there. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now let's go to the next phrase. 
and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since why? They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. He says, if you're dull of hearing, it's a dangerous place to be. And then he says one of the most sobering things in the entire scriptures. And I think part of what he's doing is he's saying, if you can't hear this, I just don't know that there's hope. If this doesn't make your heart beat a little fast, that might suggest that there's a hardening that's happened. But listen, this passage, and I'll give it away at the beginning of here, this passage is a hopeful passage. This is meant to give you hope that if you, if you can, if there's just a little bit, if there's just a little bit of a heartbeat on the monitor of your soul, if you can say, that scared me a little bit today because I think that might be me, I want you to hear that by the end, he's going to say, you're still in. You're still okay. He's gracious enough to stay with you. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, the people of God have been in this position before. And it wasn't for lack of information and experience of God that they did not get to the end. And so don't get it twisted that there's some kind of past experience. There's some kind of past knowledge. There's some kind of past conversion that you get to lean on your entire life through with no evidence that that, that what's behind you has actually moved you forward in this journey. He says, because look, okay, so here's what he's doing. And this doesn't jump out at you and, um, and it takes some knowledge of the Old Testament. What he's doing is he's actually picking up language from that Old Testament story of the people of God after the Exodus and in the wilderness. This is, this is you can go to places like Numbers 14. He's pulling a lot of language out here. And so when he says, for instance, like in the case of those, this is in verse four, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, this idea of light, the people of God were led by a pillar of light in the wilderness. Imagine the power of that image. Every day, uh, you're you're aware of the presence of God among you because there's this light. He says, okay, so there's light in your life. There's been light. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Remember what the people of God tasted in the wilderness? Anybody? Bible scholars among you? The manna, good, yeah, that this is talking about. It's saying, okay, so God has given you something from heaven and you've tasted it. You've experienced it. So did they and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have actually experienced the presence of God. Yeah, the presence of God was with the people of God in the wilderness in those stories. Have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. He says, yeah, the word was given to those people. Dramatically so, like on tablets, not in a printed English ESV, like, like the word, like handed to those people. And they saw amazing things that by comparison, most of us have never seen the kinds of miracles that that generation of the people of God saw. And then have fallen away. And then have fallen away. Numbers 14, this is, this is irrefutable that the author of Hebrews is picking up this language. The, num- uh, the Numbers 14, the generation that's rebellious against God who experienced all these amazing things and then ultimately didn't get into the promised land. The language that's used in Numbers 14 then throughout the Old Testament is that they fell in the wilderness. They fell. And it's a very dramatic image uh, to speak of. They're advancing towards somewhere and then they fell. 
It's this journey language. And it's saying, and it's, it's in some ways a euphemism for a much greater reality, which is all, they all died in the wilderness without entering the promised land. But it's interesting that the author then, and now the author of Hebrews, in this case, used this language of falling. So do you see what, what he's doing here? He's saying, look, the people of God have been in this location before. And it's not for lack of experience of God. It's not for lack of the word of God. It's not for lack of information that they didn't get there. So be careful to rest on your laurels of what's behind you in terms of experience. Be careful, right? And I know that there's some heartache in this room and on that call right now of parents who know that an entire life of investment in a child, putting them in places where they can experience the works of God and the word of God doesn't necessarily guarantee that the journey continues. And I don't want to make light of that here. In some ways, I want to say that, that, yeah, parents, it is on you to create that environment. But there is a time where you have to give them away. And that heartache is real, and God sees you in that heartache. He's not shaking his fist over you. Because at some point, this stuff has to become each of our own. I just want to, I'm sorry that that's the case. I know some of that heartache. Family members that I've invested in, students that I invested in, people in this church who have walked away. Like, this is not hypothetical. This is happening. Like, I can think of a few situations in our community, people whose names you'd recognize. This is happening as we speak. Then he puts it in the most stark terms. He says, here's what you do when you walk away. You crucify once again the Son of God, to your own harm. You hold him up to contempt. In other words, everything he did on the cross for you becomes the very means of your judgment. You become complicit in it rather than a beneficiary of it. Everything that we just celebrated on Good Friday and Easter goes from your greatest hope, goes from your greatest provision to the greatest danger of you having turned your back on it. Then he uses these two images. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, thorns and thistles, does that jump out at anyone? Where is he getting thorns and thistles language from? Anybody? Guesses? I can't really hear you behind here. There's a lot of places where thorns and thistles show up. The first place that Eden, first place shows up in Eden. Then we have this mention of the crown of thorns, right? Like this is the ultimate image of death in the scriptures. It's why it shows up in the parable of the sower is because it's such a powerful image that the land which is meant to be alive and to give life is actually experiencing the curse. And the depth of that curse is death itself. And it's saying either your land that rain falls on, and you know it's most often associated with rain in the scriptures. It's the word of God. Isaiah 55, the rain comes, it pours out, and it, and it will not return void. Unless, right, the soil's dead. And it's saying either, here's what it ultimately comes down to, and here's where the heart, hope, believe it or not, starts to come in. Either you're alive in Christ or you're still dead in your sin. Either your soil that receives the word of God and produces a crop, or your soil that has become corrupt and has either never experienced the blessing of being going from death to life or you've specifically chosen 
to harden yourself, right? This image of hardening. Picture hard soil. What happens to hard soil when rain falls? Puddles happen rather than that beautiful thing that happens to rich soil. If you've ever put soil down in your garden or you've created a bed and then the rain comes, there's this fragrance that comes from it. There's, even if you don't have seed in it yet, you have the sense of the soil is taking it in. It itself is being nourished. He's saying it's one or the other. And the reminder is that so much of what he's saying here is that walking away from faith. Now let me get, get sort of more specific about what is and is, isn't being said here. That walking away from faith is so much less often an overnight process of, I'm out. And so much more a process of this slow sluggishness that eventually becomes staying in place, that eventually becomes wandering off. It is less like a glass that is full being dramatically knocked over and spilling all, all over everything and more like the last drop out of a cup that's been leaking for some time. One author says that the only difference between nominal, that sort of casual, disinterested, apathetic faith, that kind of approach to faith, the only difference between nominal faith and explicit unbelief is time. What the author is doing is he's leading us to the edge of an abyss. He's telling us to look over, to feel the terror of what it would mean to walk away. And then the point, Jacob's well, is not to stand there and keep looking in and pondering, is that where I'm headed or is that where, is, is that where this is? No, it's to run the other way and bring everyone you love in that direction as well. And what I'm telling you today is if you are under the sound of my voice, there is opportunity to return. There is. There's opportunity to return because even you hearing and listening suggests that there's that little blip on the heart monitor. It suggests that even if most of the soil of your life is hard, maybe there's something through those cracks that's still alive underneath it. Because listen to what he says. This is so good in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, things that belong to you getting to the end. Right? That's how he uses salvation here. Things that belong to me being confident, you'll get there. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Circle, underline, do whatever you need to do to take in these verses. Though we speak in this way, he says, I gotta say it, I gotta say it. This can't go unsaid because some of you need this. For some of you, this is a life or death matter. Yet in your case, beloved. He's talking, he's doing this from love. He's not saying, but in your case, you lamos. In your case, you ignorant. In your case, you wayward. He's saying, beloved, always the call of God and God's pursuit of us in rebellion is counter to all of our expectations. He pursues us in love. Because he doesn't want to stand one day in judgment over us. So every opportunity he has, he says, now's still a time. I'm still coming for you. 
I'm still available for you. My arms are still wide open for you. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What that's really saying is we feel sure of the better. Of the better. And what's better in the book of Hebrews? More to the point, who's better? Jesus. That's your Sunday school answer. It's your Hebrews answer. right? The whole book of Hebrews, most sermon series, we went a little rebellious with resilient faith. Faith. Most uh, sermon series on Hebrews are called better for a reason. Because that's the theme of the book. He's better than this. He's better than this. He's better than this. He's better than this. He says, we feel sure because, check this out, while we are in the same location as the people of God have been in, we are not in the same situation. Let me say it again. While we are in the same location as the people of God, we are not in the same situation. We stand on better promises. We have a greater salvation. We actually have a greater hope and we have a greater provision in the midst of the wilderness. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Right? It's a little bit of a euphemism. For God is not so unjust. He's saying God is perfectly just. He's perfectly just. Now this should blow our minds. If God is just, you should receive what you deserve. And if you qualify at all for the prior par- paragraph, what you deserve in and of yourself is judgment. Is to be pushed into that abyss. Is to be left aside and ignored. And he says, but God is just to actually not overlook what little good there is in your life. How can God be just and not give you what you deserve? It's because you're in a better situation. Person of God, follower of Jesus. Because he gives you not what you deserve in and of yourself. He gives you what you deserve in Christ. He gives you what Jesus alone deserved. That belongs to the better. God's not so unjust as to overlook. What he's saying here is he's saying, look, as long as there's love, as long as there's selflessness coming from your faith, you know what that suggests? It suggests that there's still spiritual life in you. Even if it's muddled by a bunch of doubt, even if it's muddled by frustration with God, if there's still a sense in which you are doing things that the spiritually dead person is utterly incapable of, if you're still showing up to church and sitting under the word of God, even when it seemingly has grown stale, if you are continuing to give of yourself on behalf of others who don't deserve what you give, he's saying, you know what that suggests? It suggests the soil is still alive. Even if it's all the way under the surface, even if it's really hard to see at first glance, if you're alive then that's all that matters. Now look, what God wants for you is life abundant. He wants more of that life. He doesn't want a little bit of live soil under a bunch of hard dirt. No, no, he wants all of it fully. But if it's still under there, be hopeful you're you're still in him because that's impossible apart from him. You're still that soil. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, opposite of sluggishness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. One of the, one of the encouragements he gives her at the end is he says, be an imitator of those who get to the end. In other words, it's possible. There's, there's a whole bunch of saints, imperfect people, people who went through horrible struggles, horrible loss, things that made them doubt their faith in the goodness of God deeply. And they're there. They're waiting for you to say, how hard was that journey? 
man, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you made it. In some ways, earnestness is, and sluggishness, they don't belong on a continuum. They're two fundamental different reality states of being in the life of faith. It's not how sluggish or earnest am I. It's either I'm moving forward and listening. And look, earnestness at different seasons of life looks different. Some of you are in such deep and real, unmitigated, unrelenting pain right now that earnestness might look like just showing up. It might look like just staying connected with one other Christian and saying, I don't know if I even believe your prayers are real, but I'm asking you to pray for me. That's, that's earnestness in certain seasons of life. For others, earnestness looks like you need to step up and step in and start helping some other people on the journey of faith. You've received enough by now, soil, and it's time for you to actually give life to someone else. Right? Like earnestness, but, but it's, 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 it looks different, but it's not just the opposite. It's not just on a scale with sluggishness. It is life versus death. And that's what he's trying to wake us up to. Let me end with this image. This is the, uh, and it goes with, with some things that we've been saying, is um, this is, if you want my understanding of this passage, here, here's my best attempt at it. What the book of Hebrews says is that we are on this journey of faith. If I had a whiteboard, I'd be using it right now. And on that journey of faith, we all know that it's not this straight line, A to B. That you don't just, boom, just go straight ahead, right? We all have this sense in which, man, life feels more like, I'm wandering, and then he pulls me back. And then I'm like, oh, I'm good. Here's the center point. Oh, now I'm going another direction. And there's this kind of, right? Like what I would draw is this kind of thing, is what the journey to promised land often looks and feels like. That the scriptures do not say that we go from imperfection to perfection overnight. It's progression over a lifetime. If you want a little pity phrase, it's not perfection overnight, it's progression over a lifetime, is what it pictures. Which means that that progression is not this, this perfect straight slope. Instead, it's this kind of wandering, wavering thing. Here's the beautiful truth, though. Remember we said that uh, what the, the image of Jesus as our chief priest is, he's set an anchor for us. He's our lead climber. Thank you, Josh Walker. He's the one who has set those foundations in place, and he's holding us from up above, and he's participating. He's actually the main participant in pulling us into that journey. And therefore, here's the image that I want you to have, is on that journey of faith, we are tethered to Christ, who's already there, who has gone before us. And what can happen is we can wander off. And right, if you picture a tether tied around you, when you wander off, what happens to that tether? Two things happen to it. It itself gets taut, right? Like it gets pulled and strained. And what happens to it around you? Yeah, it begins to exert a kind of pressure on your body. I think that this passage is written so that you might feel in those moments, whether right now or some, at some point in your journey of faith, to say, why does it feel so constrained on me? And the answer is because you're pulling away from the anchor. And so that tether is, me is, is, is meant to be a warning sign to say, wait, I'm, I'm not on the path that I'm supposed to be on. What relieves that pressure? One of two things relieves that pressure, doesn't it? One is, right? One is cutting that tether. What's the other? One step. 
One step brings relief. One step back toward where we are meant to be in the safety of God's saving presence is sufficient to relieve that pressure. Now, you might have to take more than one step. There might be a bunch of steps back. What I'm telling you today is why this is meant to be a hopeful passage is it's saying, all you have to do is one step. Because when you feel that relief, here's what my guess will be. You'll say, well, if that's the direction I've got to go for the relief, I'll take another step, Right? I think the clear teaching of Scripture, if you do want my theological answer to can you lose your salvation, I think that the image that at least the book of Hebrews is giving us is it's saying this, as tight as that line gets. There is the option. Just like, just like God gives us volition to step into faith. If that's a choice that we make, it is not something that, now there's all kinds of theology behind that, but the simple teaching is that faith is something that, that we participate in so too can we cut the line. And yet the hope of this passage, the hope of the New Testament, is guess what? No matter how tight that line gets, no matter how much force that it's exerting, no matter how far we go, no matter how much we yank, on that end of the line, never, ever, 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 ever will it be cut. Until that day that we stand in judgment, it will never be cut on Jesus' end. He's a good Savior. All of His promises belong to the better, and He is infinitely more invested in getting you home than you or the people you love or your parents ever possibly could be. And all He's calling every one of us to in some kind of way, even if you've just taken a, a sidestep away from Him, is say, come back, because there's safety and blessing and goodness. The better is here. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why even this heavy passage, it's good news. It's good news. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you're a God who doesn't hold back from us. You're not a God who withholds warning from us. Lord, those under the sound of my voice who need this wake up, God, I pray, probably in some sense, it's every single one of us. Lord, I know that you woke me up through this passage this week. God, I pray that we would be a people of constant, consistent repentance, that we would move back towards you. And Lord, I just pray against the work of the enemy who would say to anyone that this passage means that they're beyond your grace, that they are beyond um, your redeeming pursuit of them. Lord, help them to feel the, the soul-level relief of just taking even one step back toward you. God, even as we now receive these elements, we pray that this would be an opportunity to do precisely that. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is constantly offering welcome back home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.